You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Hallis the Mac, Chicago Bears History by the Decade. I'm Jeff Burkus, a writer for Windy City Gridiron, and I'm partnering up for this special podcast series with lifelong Bears fan and historian Matt Winner. We hope this episode will be your bag because we think it's pretty groovy. Matt, welcome to the 1960s. <laughs> Great intro, Jeff, and happy to be back, and let's get it rolling. Yeah, I went to a website to find some 60s slang and found a lot of kind of ridiculous sayings, but, eh, you know, uh, I think some you of them... sounded very used. natural saying. <laughs> yeah, it sounded very square, for sure. All right, so <laughs> we'll start off with the cocktail of the decade, and for 1960, there are a lot of fun choices, but I ended up going with one that I think is super easy to make, and I think this is probably our house specialty at my home and so it's called the manhattan i'm sure you've mm, had them classic yes uh basically it's really easy you take two shots of whiskey and for this i'd recommend rye rye just carries a little bit better in this drink it's got more of a kind of a peppery taste than a straight bourbon but you'll see people making it with bourbon or other whiskeys but i, I really think you should try to find a rye here take one shot of sweet vermouth honestly vermouth is one of those things where it's really tempting to just buy that really cheap bottle of vermouth, the one that's in the green bottle, it's not really a great vermouth. I think you'll be really happy if you kind of push yourself to spend a little bit more money on a decent vermouth, try to find something in like the $15 range. It lasts a while because you're only using it one shot of drink, but I think you'll be very happy with that. Add in a couple dashes of bitters, and then you just want to stir that until it's really cold. So a couple cubes of ice and just stir, 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 stir until it's really cold. Strain that into some kind of cocktail glass, maybe like a martini glass, just something that has a stem in it so that when you drink it, you won't warm the drink up with your hands. And then you want to garnish with a maraschino cherry or two. Usually for me, I put two in because it's a nice little treat at the end of the drink. And then I'll give you a little tip on the cherries, Filthy Cherries, the brand name Filthy is actually my favorite brand of maraschino cherries. Try the black cherries. I think they're just absolutely phenomenal. Whatever you do, don't put them in the refrigerator because they're actually packed in syrup and they'll just kind of clump together if I made that mistake once. So you want to keep those out. They'll be fine at room temperature. So very easy drink to make, but an absolute staple and something that everybody should at least try or maybe incorporate into the home bar, the Manhattan. And and viewers, uh, our viewers need to know, Jeff, you were a bartender back in college, so you know your stuff. I 
was a bartender and I like to continue to work on that skill. And I will say that Matt has continued to call our listeners viewers. That's because he's new to podcasting. And so not a lot this of viewers. This is my first podcast series and I'm, <laughs> I'm still confused about how it all works, but I'm learning as we go. Matt keeps running the video camera for some reason. We don't know why. I figured I'd break it to him in episode five that there actually are no viewers, but they're only listeners. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll still keep going. That's fine. Which, to be fair, works to our benefit because we both have faces for radio. So Yes, we do. Let's recap this absolutely crazy time in the NFL, the 1960s. There is a lot going on. And I'm going to just stick to the NFL. We're going to talk a little bit about the AFL when they come in to play what is now known as the Super Bowl, but we're going to get into an AFL breakdown in the next episode because I got a lot to just go through here. So 1960, the Dallas Cowboys are added to the NFL. They go into the Western Division, and the Cardinals move out of Chicago, and they move down to St. Louis. So a couple big things happen in 1960. 1961, the Vikings are added to the West, and the Cowboys, for an inexplicable reason get kicked over into the eastern division i do not understand this why this happens i don't understand why this happens in their second year of being a franchise and i do not understand why they don't just move the baltimore colts (laughs) into that division doesn't make a lot of sense jeff no it does not so the Baltimore Colts, for some reason, stick into the West, and the Cowboys get kicked over the East, but the Vikings are added as a new team, and they're in the West. So obviously, Vikings, 1961, that's when they come in. Uh, 1966, a couple things happen. Atlanta Falcons are a franchise, uh, expansion franchise in 1966, and then that is the first year of the NFL champion playing the winner of the AFL championship that we now call the Super Bowl, did not get called the Super Bowl back then. 1967, New Orleans Saints are added as an expansion team. So we're now up to 16 teams in the NFL. And then they changed the designation. So up until 1966, they just went with the Western and the Eastern divisions. Now they're Mm -hmm. up to 16, so they divided into four divisions. I find this to be fascinating. Four divisions, the capital division. It has Washington Philly, for some reason, Dallas, and Atlanta. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. The Century Division has the Browns, the Giants, the Steelers, and the St. Louis Cardinals. The Coastal Division has the Rams, the 49ers. Okay, that makes sense. The Saints, I mean, they're on the Gulf Coast. And then the Baltimore Colts, (laughs) which, again... (laughs) They're on the East Coast, but again, Coastal Division, I don't really get it, and I, I just do not understand why the, the Colts are getting thrown around here. And then, of course, the Central Division, you have the Bears, the Packers, the Vikings, and the Lions. So, nineteen Just how it should be. Absolutely. So, 1967 is kind of the first formation of that four-pack of teams being together. So, that's pretty interesting. And that's how the NFL runs from 67 to 69, the Coastal Division played the Central Division, and the Capital Division played the Century Division in the first round of the playoffs. And then the winners of those two games would play for the NFL title. And then the team that won the NFL title would square off with the AFL champ for what we now call the Super Bowl. So that's kind of how things were set up 
and the changes in the NFL in the 1960s. So a lot going on, kind of a crazy decade for that. In the 1960s, the Bears, you know, Matt, they're, they're pretty average as a decade, right? So they finished the decade 67, 65, and 6, basically. That's about as average as you can get. They win one championship in 1963. It's pretty much the size of it. But the team, as far as great players, like interesting characters, and quite frankly, tragedy, make this decade one of the most important decades in team history and one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting. I'm not sure if we'll see another decade like this in terms of both good and bad. Uh, Colorful cast of characters, some success, probably not as much as you think they could have had with the players that they had, but certainly a fun decade to learn about. Absolutely. So George Hallis during this time, so he winds down his coaching career in the 60s, coaches his last season in 67. And so this is kind of the episode I think that we're probably going to stop talking about George Hallis, you know, a lot. And so I just wanted to take a moment and recap his coaching career. So 40 years as a head coach, he compiles a record of 318 wins, 148 losses, and 31 ties. And his playoff record is 6-3. and three. So at the time, far and away, the most wins as a head coach, broken by Don Shula in the 90s. But otherwise, this is, you know, crazy amount of wins, crazy amount of success. Do you happen to know where Belichick is at? I think Belichick's third right now. Is he? He has to have over 200. Oh, well over 200. I think that he has to coach a couple more years to, to pass Hallis, but it's very possible that he could pass Hallis and maybe get to, to uh, uh, Shula. You think Belichick and Hallis would like each other? I think that they would absolutely. Well, I mean, they would be. Okay. <laughs> How do I answer this? Because on the one hand, they would absolutely respect each other because they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're absolutely like just original football nerds. You know, Belichick would love Hallis. And I think vice versa. I think Hallis would have a lot of respect for Belichick. As long as Belichick's not like in the same division where there's some sort of heated rivalry. I think that, yeah, I think they would just absolutely admire each other from afar. And being that we know Belichick mostly from the Patriots and I guess the Browns before that. Yes, the Giants, but let's just say the Patriots, more of an AFC team. Yeah, I think that they would probably like each other quite a bit. Probably two guys that we'll never see the likes of again, Hallis and Belichick. I don't, I don't think we'll, well, we'll certainly never see another Hallis. I don't see how that's possible. But also another Belichick, I just don't know if, if anyone can do what he's done. I think if you're putting a Mount Rushmore of coaches together, that those two guys are two of the four. Like, it's just absolutely going to happen. Shula, throw Shula on there. I, re- I refuse to throw Lombardi on there, but that's a good three. Hallis, Shula. Lombardi was a good coach, but he was not innovative in a lot of ways. This is not a bashing of Lombardi at all. He's obviously a, an all-time coach, but he was more of like a – I would call him kind of like a Six Sigma black belt where he like was trying to get the most efficient play that he could. He just run the same plays over and over and over and he'd run them perfectly. He wasn't about opening it up or making these big strides and new schemes. He was about trying to run things to perfection, which is, which is fine. And obviously was very successful, but he didn't innovate or move the game in a way that Hallis did. So that's my, <laughs> that's my breakdown and comparison nice. between the two, but So Hallis is credited with five NFL championships. 
He's awarded the AP Coach of the Year in 1963 and in 1965. And that's an award that wasn't around for the first, you know, part of the NFL's history. It was just started in like the mid-1950s. I'm sure he would have won a bunch more. But he wins two in this decade, which is pretty impressive in and of itself. He's a member of the original Hall of Fame class in 1963 as an owner, manager, coach, player and promoter, which is a pretty impressive description of what he accomplished in the NFL. And then, of course, after this decade, eventually the George S. Hallis Trophy is awarded to the NFC champions, which unfortunately the Bears have only won twice, but still very high honor for that trophy to be named after George Hallis. And then the George S. Hallis Courage Award is given to the person who overcomes the most adversity in a given year. And that award has been given to a Chicago Bear three times. Can you name the three Chicago Bears? So it's been given to a Chicago Bear three times. Gosh, let's go. Let's just throw Peyton in there. Let's go. Is Peyton one of them? So it's so no. It's the player that can't overcome has oh, overcome okay, the most okay. adversity. Um, when did this first start? In late 1960s, early 1970s. All right, let's go. Gosh, Sayers. Yep. Gosh, I, you're going to have to tell me, Jeff. We don't want our listeners to have to hear me think for 20 minutes. Don't worry. I'm going to cut out all the dead stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, then. Um, God, I'm blanking. I'm totally blanking. Let's go with... I don't know, Jeff. So it's Gail Sears, Dick Buckus, and Dan Hampton. Buckus and Hampton, huh? So three Hall of Famers win this award. So not bad. <laughs> so I, I think that's kind of an interesting little tidbit. And so here's kind of how I see George Hallis. I think that he did enough as a coach to be a Hall of Famer in and of itself. I don't think that's debatable. No, I would agree. I think that if he was just an owner, he'd be a Hall of Famer. And I don't think that's debatable. And then I think that through this research of all of the moves that he's done, I think as a general manager, just the personnel moves that he's made during his time that that in of itself he would be a hall of famer and so and he played which is kind of cool because <laughs> he wasn't a hall of fame player but it's it's cool that he you know has the early history of being a player and so to me that's an amazing legacy because mm-hmm. i think that he's at, individually would be a hall of famer three separate ways and i think that's just a ridiculously cool legacy and he deserves every accolade that gets thrown his way I think not only does he deserve every accolade that's thrown its way, I think he deserves more. Jeff, through learning about all of this, I didn't realize just how instrumental Hallis was, of course for the Bears, but more so for the league itself. And it kind of makes me almost upset that we don't hear more about Hallis. As Bears fans, we hear about Hallis. We see the, the sleeves of the jerseys, and we know all that. But uh, the NFL, I don't think, sings this guy's praises enough. He's, he's one of a kind. And like we were saying before, there's never going to be another George Hallis. Never. Yeah, I mean, there are other owners that have had interesting you know, legacies of their own and get into the Hall of Fame as just being owners that have made really shrewd decisions and helped out on, you know, the competition committee, you know, things like that. But, you know, this is this is a guy that did all of that early and then he did all that great coaching and he did all that great, you know, work as a personnel guy as basically the general manager. And so it's to me, it's just fascinating. And I just wanted to make sure that we gave enough space here to kind of tip our caps to George Hallis here. Absolutely. Uh, so 
So what do you think about the 1960s history? Can you tell us what was going on in the 1960s in the U.S. and maybe beyond? It's a, a very important time in our history, and there's definitely some big events, more so maybe of the negative type, but we'll save those for the end. Uh, here's some tidbits from the 60s. We're nearing 200 million people for the United States. Uh, the average American salary is somewhere between seven dollars and $8,000 a year. Jeff, get this. Our national debt is $275 million, which is looking pretty good compared to what we have yeah. today. Milk costs a quarter a quart. Fashion-wise, the early 60s, things are still pretty conservative. People are dressing a lot like they did in the 50s. People look nice. But when we get into the mid and later 60s, you start to see more of that, what I would call, hippie-ish look, which I can't stand, Jeff. Like Anytime watching a movie where it takes place in the mid to late 60s, early 70s, I hate that fashion. I don't like it. I don't care for it. Sort of skip right over that. I find, <laughs> I find the automobile industry very interesting because there's a sudden push to make cars more safe. Like, hey, maybe we should have these certain types of brakes that work well. Or, hey, maybe we should have seatbelts in cars and things like that. And so cars are becoming more safe. Accidents are going down. And I just love the look of the cars from this time. I, and Jeff, you know me. I'm not a car guy. But when I look at like a, a Mustang, a Ford Mustang from this era, it's just it's a beautiful car. And I think a lot of the cars are really attractive. Jeff, for TV, movies, and music, we're going to do something a little different since we're getting to the time where we have seen a lot of these shows. Uh, you and I were both born in the early 80s, and so we would have seen reruns of some of these shows growing up. So in the TV category, Jeff, I'm going to give you five shows, and I want you to tell me which one is your favorite out of those five, if you have one. Okay. So we got Bonanza, Andy Griffith Show, Bewitched, The Beverly Hillbillies, and Gunsmoke. So for me, the only one out of that that I actually watched would have been the Andy Griffith show. Same for me. I remember, I think when we got cable, I was pretty young and on Nickelodeon, they would have the Andy Griffith show. And I actually kind of liked that show. Now, movies you'll like a little more, Jeff. Here's some big movies from the 60s. We got Psycho, Lawrence of Arabia, The Longest Day, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, The Dirty Dozen, James Bond movies start during this time, and later in the decade, we have 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. So which one of those movies, I think I know your answer, but which one would you pick? Well, at first I was going to say The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly because that is a really great movie, you know, The Man With No Name, but The Dirty Dozen, it's got Jim Brown in it. Jim Brown, actor slash football player. <laughs> that slash probably goes the other way around, but I'm going The Good, and The Bad, and The Ugly just because I love that western i love those spaghetti westerns that clint eastwood was in uh music here's some big artists and granted i'm pretty biased i'm only picking the type of music that i like but we got beatles the beach boys marvin gay the rolling stones the doors Jimi hendrix and towards the end of the decade led zeppelin jeff you can only pick one which one are you picking i'm taking led zeppelin Jeff, i uh, i I would actually go with the Beach Boys only because Led Zeppelin is oh get out of here. Led Zeppelin is still around <laughs> in the seventies, Jeff, and I love the Beach Boys. I grew up listening to the Beach Boys. You don't think the Beach them. Boys are around in the seventies? Uh, uh, they could be. I don't know. I didn't do that research that far, but to the world, Jeff, to the world, the sixties actually uh, kick off quite well for America. You got the election of JFK. Jeff, America loves JFK. 
They love his wife. They love his family. They love everything about this attractive young family that's in the White House. Now, we have some big events early on. You have the Bay of Pigs. You have the Cuban Missile Crisis. JFK shows his medal as a leader and leads us through it. And then you have the assassination. Not only is JFK assassinated, later in the decade, his brother Robbie is assassinated. You have Martin Luther King gets assassinated. This is the era where the Vietnam War starts. This is where we're getting into a lot of the negative stuff. And this is still the height of the civil rights era, Jeff. And eventually legislation gets passed. But you've seen the, the clips on TV of what African-Americans in all parts of the country had to go through. And so there's a lot of protests, things like that. And just a very turbulent time in our history, but a very interesting time as well. That's U.S. history in the 1960s. All right, Matt, so let's get into the key players for this decade. So what I think is kind of interesting about this decade for the Bears is that a lot of the players that we covered last time carry over mm -hmm. into the first part of the 60s. Absolutely. And if you think about it, like Hallis built this squad through the 50s, and a lot of these guys, like they're, they're kind of either at the apex of their career or they're kind of holding on for the last couple of years and kind of peak around that 63 season where they win the championship makes sense. And then a lot of these guys kind of retire out. So Caceres, he's on the team until 64. Bill George until 65, although 63 was really his last full season of starting with the Bears, and then he, he kind of gets hurt and he's he kind of peters out. Doug Atkins is on the team until 66. Uh, Joe Fortunato is on the team until 66 as well, and Stan Jones, the Hall of Fame guard, is on the team until 65. So a lot of those guys that we talked about last time are the core of that 63 championship team. But we're going to talk about eight more guys like we've done every episode. What I think is kind of crazy about this is that five of the guys that we're going to talk about have their number retired by the Bears. So this is like an incredibly important time for the Bears. And the first guy that we're going to talk about is actually the person that has the honor of being the last number retired by the Bears. It was announced that they wouldn't retire any more numbers going forward. This was going to be the last number that they retired that's Mike Ditka, and you drew Mike Ditka. I believe that was my first round choice, Mike Ditka, 6'3", 230, out of Pittsburgh. Jeff, do you know what he went to school for, what he wanted to be? <laughs> Take a guess. It's Mike Ditka. Take oh, a guess. I, I mean, I don't know, mechanical engineering. A dentist. Can you imagine <laughs> in the dentist chair about to be put yeah. under and Mike Ditka comes storming in? Don't make him mad. Don't make him mad. I love Mike Dicka, Jeff, and we grew up towards the tail end of Mike Dicka's coaching career and just a striking figure on the sidelines, and I'd always heard he was a good player, and I knew how good of a player he was, but man, he was fun to do some more research about. I read a, a Dicka book about five, six years ago, and I found his dad to be really important in who the person Mike Dicka became. Now, his dad was a basically a railroad worker and was a union president, just a tough as nails guy, no nonsense, and that's how he raised his kid. So for instance, when Ditka signs his first contract, it's 12000 a year plus a $6,000 signing bonus, his dad says to him, you know, you figure his dad would be all happy, his dad says to him, well, most men have to work a long time to get that kind of money. So that's, that's the type of background Ditka had. <laughs> And I remember this one particular passage in the book, and I couldn't find the book to get this completely accurate. So forgive me if I'm wrong a little bit, but there's this railroad strike. And so they don't want people to cross the line. They don't want people to cross the picket line. And so 
the elder Ditka takes his son, who I believe is maybe in his teenagers at this time. They take him to the railway and they're blocking the way in and they have shotguns and sticks and everything. And they're just, they got this angry mob on him and they just hold the ground and eventually the mob leaves. And so I think Ditka has a certain reputation, but I think you got to understand where he came from that helped kind of made him the person that he was. As a player, I'd say he's best known for revolutionizing the tight end position. And they weren't too confident in his hands right away. And so what they did is uh, another genius move. Hallis brings Sid Buckman back to work with Ditka. And what they do is they gather all these old footballs and they just paint little numbers on all the footballs. So 30, 55, or whatever. And what Luckman would throw him the ball, and then Dicka had to tell him the number after he would catch it because I guess his hands weren't great right away. wasn't like a natural uh, mm. catcher of the ball. and so. But his rookie year, it must have worked. 56 catches, 1,000 yards, 12 touchdowns. Nothing like that had been seen before from that position. And so Dicka literally changed the way that the game was played. And so fantastic player on, on the field. Ah, that's awesome. Off the field. Just as interesting. Where, <laughs> yeah, probably, probably more interesting off the field. Uh, his One of his running buddies was the wide receiver who we'll get to later, Johnny Morris. And I've got a, a story I really like here, um, and I think it says a lot about Ditka. So they're at this dinner. They don't like Billy Wade as their quarterback. They would prefer this guy named Rudy. No one does. <laughs> they, <laughs> they would prefer this guy named Rudy Bukic. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name. But they are unaware that there's this reporter at the dinner with them. And so this reporter is getting all this information down. And it comes out in the papers. And Hallis is pissed. Hallis is so pissed. He calls them both at like 2 in the morning and says, you guys are apologizing in front of the team bright and early tomorrow. And so Hallis gets Johnny Morris. And he gets Mike Ditka up there. And Johnny Morris goes first. And he's very apologetic. Ah, I'm sorry. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that. Whatever. And then Hallis says to Iron Mike, what do you got to say, Ditka? And Ticka says, I got nothing to say. And just that's it. Just doesn't say anything. Doesn't apologize. <laughs> but that's who he was. Like, right. That's what, how he was raised. That's who he was. He wasn't going to take anything like that back. He said it. Another one of my favorite Dicka stories. I don't know what year this is from, but I guess it was quite common at the time for maybe a drunkard to run onto the field. And this still happens today. And security chases them down. I love these. I just think it's, I hope, wish they would show this more. But. There's this guy that chooses the wrong time to run in the field. He runs, somehow gets close to the Bears huddle. Dicka just sprints after him and basically clotheslines him. He does a flip, lands on his back, and everyone thinks that he's dead. (laughs) You could just totally see Dicka doing that. When asked about it, and I'll clean this up, Dicka answered, when asked, why did you do that? He says, because that guy's got no effing right to be on the field. The field is for players. So I think most people know that the only reason Dicka left the Bears was because of contract disputes with Hallis. And he finishes up his playing career with the Eagles. He doesn't do much for the Eagles. He's quite depressed because he had been traded by Hallis. And he eventually catches down with the Cowboys, wins the Super Bowl, kind of revives his career a little bit. And that's where he begins his coaching career. And you know, obviously this episode isn't for getting into his coaching career, but... Another one of these players, Jeff, that revolutionized how the game is played. 
any tight end that comes after, they owe a debt of gratitude to Mike Ditka because literally no one was doing what he was doing, and he changed the tight end position. And just a, a fantastic guy to learn about and one of my all-time favorite Bears. Yeah, awesome stuff. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about Mike Ditka in the 80s episode, maybe into the 90s episode, but certainly just as a player was fascinating. And my first guy is actually maybe not as interesting as Mike Ditka, but he is certainly as funny. <laughs> That's Ed Obradovich, defensive end, played from 62 through 71. I love this guy. I found this NFL Films clip. I don't know. I don't know where I found it or how I found it. I was doing some research, uh, I think, on Buckus, and it led me to this, and it was just amazing. This NFL Films click, it has some really great lines. They describe him as wild, tough, and relentless as a player, which I think is just great. And then uh, later on in the clip, they say, he was a player without much subtlety in a time that demanded even less. <laughs> That's a great quote. Which I think is just amazing, right? So then they've got these interviews with him. And the first part, so I'm, gonna, so I'm quoting Obradovich here, and he says, the gratifying thing about it is when you get to the quarterback. And those are some other people I didn't like. You know, at the time, <laughs> you know, at the time I'm making 10-5, and they're making 105. You know, that's just – there's just this great hate for him. <laughs> and I just was like, this guy's amazing. And so he's six foot three, he's 255 pounds. So he's really big. There's a, a local uh, Chicago Tribune writer that uh, was on this, this clip as well said, you know, he was kind of the Hulk Hogan of the time, but you got to think about it. He's on the other side of Doug Atkins, who's even bigger, six foot eight. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've got these two giant defensive ends and what I find even more interesting is that Atkins wore number 81, Obradovich wore number 87. <laughs> so we're so used to those being wide receiver numbers that the, now to kind of think of these like two giant defensive ends. But these are two monsters on the line. And there was another guy in the clip, Mike Pyle. Mike Pyle's a guy that we could have brought in as one of the eight that we talked about. Really, really good center for the Bears during this decade. But he's got this look on his face when he's talking about Obradovich like, uh, Bradovich was wild, and he, t- he said he was like World War Three, walking down the street, and could go <laughs> off any time. <laughs> it's like, is awesome. who is this guy, right? You know, digging into a little more, he's a he's a lifelong bear. He's an Illinois native. He his biggest play of his career, I think, certainly was in the nineteen sixty three championship game. He intercepted a pass, and it set up the go-ahead score in a game that had, like, no offense. We can probably talk about that in a little bit. And then after his playing days, he hosts a post-game show alongside uh, Doug Buffone. What I find maybe the most interesting is that he probably almost certainly became really close friends with a lot of Bears because he gave the Hall of Fame induction speeches for Mike Ditka and Dan Hampton. Wow, and there's not much of a better compliment than someone asking you to give that induction speech. Right. Cause these are guys that like Mike Dicka would have played on the other side of the ball. You know, Dan Hampton would not have played with him. Mm-hmm. And so these are guys that he forged these relationships in, you know, in different circumstances. A lot of times it's someone's kid or their dad or, or, you know, a, a, an old football coach, you know, that, that has, that reads the presentation, but to have a guy like Obradovich do it for these two great bears, I think it just really shows just how much of the fabric of the bears that he's woven into. And, and so I wanted to make sure we talked about Obradovich because he's one of my favorite guys from this decade. 
Your next guy, Matt, is on the back end of that defense, and that's Richie Pettibon. What can you tell us about him? I had heard of Richie Pettibon before because I had heard of him from coaching. And I, I admit I had no idea he was a Chicago Bear. Not only was he a Chicago Bear, Jeff, he was a very, very, very good player. 6'3", 200 pounds, safety, second-round pick in 1959. And he starts off as a cornerback, but eventually they move him to the safety end. I think you and I both have a love affair with safeties, guys like Mike Brown, Eddie Jackson, Mark Carrier. There's something just about a, a ball-hawking safety that's the last line of defense. And Pettibone was that for the Bears in the early 60s. Here's two seasons back-to-back, Jeff. 1962 and 1963. 1962, he has six picks for 212 return yards and a touchdown. 63, he has eight picks for 161 yards and a touchdown. He's still second in Bears history at interceptions, and he still has the record for a 101-yard interception return that he did against the Los Angeles Rams. Four Pro Bowls, one first-team All-Pro. Just really... uh, the Bears have maybe never had that Ed Reed type safety, but, mm-hmm. but we've had a lot of safeties that are very, very, very good. And for whatever reason, I'm not sure why he hasn't gotten more attention. And we understand like someone like Mike Brown just got hurt. Maybe he was going to have that Hall of Fame type career, but he got hurt. Richie Pettibone, he was very, very, very good. And then he goes on and he's a defensive coordinator for the Washington Redskins. You know I love my coaches. And while he is defensive coordinator, they win three Super Bowls in 11 seasons. He takes over. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I I had heard the name because he eventually coaches the Redskins. And he doesn't have a lot of success there, of course. Some of that is just circumstance and timing. But uh, a fun bear to learn about. I I couldn't find as much information about his playing career as I would have liked. But certainly very, very good safety. Put up huge numbers. Had to be just a ball-hawking safety. I'm sure it was a lot of fun to watch, and that's Richie Pettibone. Yeah, so I took the other safety. That's Rosie Taylor, and really I kind of wanted to just talk a lot about this secondary because I think this is one of the better secondaries in team history. And Rosie Taylor is probably the second name that deserves to be talked about, but I'm going to mention the corners during this little chat here too. But Rosie Taylor played 61 through 69 he made two pro bowls and he was the first team all pro in 1963 obviously the championship year so you got two great safeties uh taylor he's undrafted out of grambling state but quickly earns a starting role and he notched 23 interceptions during his time there he's still 10th in franchise history nine interceptions during that 63 season and in 68, he returned a, a pick for 96 yards for a touchdown. So he had one of those long touchdown returns. So in 63, just to kind of give you an idea about how good this secondary was. So Taylor leads the team with nine interceptions. Pettibone had eight, like you just mentioned. And then both corners, Dave Weasel Witzel and Benny McCray, they both had six apiece. So it's that's a, a lot that's of a interceptions. Great, Holy cow. It's a lot of interceptions. And so you think about it, it's like it's a really good secondary, but that pass rush i assume was what was probably causing so so many of those opportunities but still either way racking up huge numbers and that really culminates in the championship game as the bears pick off the giants five times and three of them came from members of that secondary so just overall that secondary i think was just really great and probably not talked about enough because i think a lot of the other names that we've talked about in the front seven are more famous but these guys on the back end deserve their due as well absolutely 
So let's flip it over to the offense, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hand this over to you to talk about the story of Willie Gallimore. Retired numbers of the Chicago Bears to me are so fascinating. I want to know the story behind each one. I'd always seen that 28 was retired, but I had never I never knew why. And so in doing research for this, I finally got my answer. Now Willie Gallimore is number 28 for the Bears. His number is going to be retired. He's known as Willie the Wisp Gallimore. He attends this small college in Florida, Florida A&M. He actually goes there, Jeff, to play basketball for stuff, which I've seen highlights of him in the football field, and you know I'm a huge basketball guy. I would like to see this guy in the basketball court, too, with how quick and fast he was. I imagine at 6'1", 190, he's probably a guard, probably someone that handles the ball a lot. And I can't imagine trying to stay in front of the guy, trying to guard him. But he never actually plays basketball. For whatever reason, the football coach takes an interest in him, and gets him to come out for football, and he never plays a single game of basketball. Now, uh, one of the funnier things I came across in this is a old NFL Films clip where they're talking about Willie Gallimore. And according to the NFL film story, Hallis got a tip from a, a horse racer down in Florida, <laughs> or a horse trainer down in Florida, said, you got to check out this kid, Willie Gallimore. And so he's a fifth-round draft pick, which is a steal because he's this amazing athlete, this amazing player. Another story I read said that, no, it was just a, it was a, a bear scout that got a tip down there from, hey, check out this kid. But for whatever reason, he gets drafted. He's a running back. We haven't even mentioned that yet. He's, he's this running back. And when I watch clips of him, Jeff, at first you would swear it was Gale Sayers because I've seen a lot of Gale Sayers clips in my life. Sure. Watching Gallimore. They look almost exactly the same. They just have that, you could almost call it elegant running style where mm. they don't look like, obviously they're putting a ton of effort in to run that fast, but it's just, it seems so effortless when they're doing it. And he's just, he is quicker side to side than anyone else on the field. And when he gets in the open field, ah, good night nurse, it's, it, he might take it to the house and super fun to watch his highlights. Because even at this time, there's not a lot of highlights. You can't find a lot of stuff on YouTube or wherever. But I saw about a four-minute clip of Gallimore just breaking these long runs, and it was great. And so he's, he's this great running back. Never puts up huge numbers, but I think it's just more of maybe they were worried that a kind of a tinier guy, like he couldn't take a pounding of 200, 250 carries a year. But at the start of the 1964 training camp, he gets into a car accident with teammate Bo Farrington, and they are both tragically killed. Um, they were coming back from this from this dinner at a country club, and it was a winding road, and a sign supposedly had been knocked out about this curve in the road. For whatever whatever happened, they lost control, and both of them passed away. And so that had to be a huge, huge blow to the Bears for that 64 season. Here was a guy, two guys that were beloved by their teammates, and I can't imagine trying to get through that, not only through training camp, but also through the rest of the season. And one of the most interesting things he did happened right before his accident, and that he participated in this civil rights demonstration right before he was going to go back to training camp. And so a great story for Bears fans to know. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because he's not one of the names that sticks out. And I would say that if you know the Bears' history well, I would say that it might be the name that you're most maybe confused about given their playing career. And so it's interesting that it was probably – obviously it was a very emotional time and he's well-loved. He played for seven seasons and they just coming off that 63 championship. So it's a really 
highs are really high and the lows are really low in this decade. It's it's very it's a very interesting decade. But the other guy that you had was Johnny Morris, the great wide receiver and running mate of uh, Mike Dicka, as you said earlier. So tell us more about Morris. Might be one of my favorite guys I've researched so far. And growing up in the in the early '90s as a Bears fan, you would always hear about Johnny Morris. He's the last receiver to do this, last receiver to do that. And so always hearing about that name, it was very interesting for me to learn about. It's 5'10", 180, track and football star in college. Now, Jeff, he's a 12th round draft pick. He goes to the University of California, Santa Barbara. Now there's this coach out there called Ed Cody. He was a Bears fullback in the late 40s. He gives Hallis the tip on this Johnny Morris guy. Like, Coach Hallis, this guy is so fast. In college, supposedly, he ran a 5'2", 50-yard dash which supposedly was the world record at the time. Now, whether that's true or not, who cares? This guy is fast. This guy is the fastest guy on the field. And so the Bears draft him, 12th round, it's a steal. They start him at halfback because, I mean, that makes sense. He's really fast. He's really quick. Put him at halfback, and he's okay. He's a pretty good running back. Uh, He's a really good kick returner. But in the early 60s, Hallis gets this idea to kind of put him as a as a receiver. And he stole this idea from the Eagles with this guy named Tommy McDonald because I guess most of the receivers at that time were over six foot. You know, 6'1", 6'2", 200 pounds. And so here's this guy, 5'10", 180. Today, that's no problem. Today, you see guys like that all the time. But I guess he was pretty rare at the time. And so they move him at, to receiver, and he just puts up huge numbers, huge, huge numbers. His best season, and these numbers to me are staggering at the time, In 1964, 92 catches, 1,200 yards, 10 touchdowns. His his catch record stands for 21 years until Art Monk breaks it. 21 years. Like, he was that far ahead of his time. Uh, And would that have been uh, Marty Booker that broke it as a franchise record? It would have had to have been Marty Booker, I believe, in the 2001 season. I I think he had 100 catches, but... Just super fast. He would race guys on the team all the time. He would never lose. The uh, the first time he lost, he actually tied. Who do you think he tied with <laughs> on the team? A rookie in the mid-60s. Well, Gail Sayers. Gail Sayers. Ties with Sayers. After that, Johnny Morris has knee surgery, comes back, loses to Sayers, which there's no shame in that. But <laughs> no. just sounds like a real character. Kind of getting into trouble. Him and Ditka getting into trouble. Supposedly, he would uh, smoke during games. <laughs> I mean, that's such a 1950s, 1960s type thing. And, you know, him and Dicka both would get into it with Hallis. Morris one time wanted to raise. He says, I want 2,000 more. Hallis says no because he was just coming off this injury. And then Morris keeps pushing. Hallis won't budge because Hallis is stubborn as a mule. Eventually, Hallis... Gives him four season tickets as his race. And Morris <laughs> felt like he won the lottery there. But just a lot of his, he's kind of still the gold standard for a wide receiver for the Bears. And the numbers he was putting up at the time were, were ridiculous. And he gets into broadcasting afterwards and has a very successful broadcasting career, not only with the Chicago Bears on WBBM, but also in other sports in general. I've seen interviews with him, and he seems like a very charismatic, fun guy. This is before our time, but was a very popular uh, broadcaster for the Bears. I hope we get someone that can break some of his numbers. 
as it stands, this is the guy. Johnny Morris is still the guy, Jeff. He is still the franchise leader in career receiving yards. Which is both awesome and sad because he didn't play all that long. And he starts suffering from injuries later in his career that you know, he had that knee injury and that really sapped his speed and that was kind of his game. Yeah, just huge numbers and hopefully at some point we have the next Johnny Morris. Yeah. Absolutely. Hopefully that's Allen Robinson. But all right, so I get two of the biggest players in Chicago Bears history to end this segment with, which is just crazy, but they they almost have to be linked together. And so I'm going to start with Dick Buckus. So Buckus was drafted in 1965. He plays through 73. He makes eight Pro Bowls and five First Team All Pros. He's you know obviously he's a Hall of Famer. He was in in the class of 79. When I think about Dick Buckus, I think this guy was born to be a Chicago Bear. He's a Chicago native, played his college ball at the University of Illinois. Basically, he's drafted in the 1965 draft to take over for Bill George. Bill George, in you know, nearing the end of his career, Bill George has created the middle linebacker position. Hallis sees this guy, you know, playing nearby at University of Illinois. Says, I need Buckus on the team. He's going to take over for George. Not only does he do that, but I think he kind of breaks the mold that that George has created. He's named to both the 1960s and 70s All-Decade teams, wow. which, <laughs> that's, is, that's you know, which is great. He, to me, I think he sets the standard for middle linebacker position that all future players are going to be measured against. And I think one of the things that's reflective of that is that college football named the award for best college linebacker after him. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good compliment. He's on the 75-year anniversary team, and of course he's on that 100-year anniversary team that came out earlier this year. That was no surprise. I think Buckus is really funny. Uh, he was in a lot of commercials of the era, so you'll see Buckus in commercials like, you know, schlepping Miller Lite or whatever. Uh, I think he's just kind of a national treasure in a lot of ways because he's really funny. You've seen him in all old NFL films clips when he's talking about stuff. He's really funny, and he's obviously – just a beast on the field, but he's just seems like this really funny guy. And Jeff, do you remember what TMBC show he starred in in the nineties? Is that the is that the Hang Time? Yes, he was. He, maybe for a season or two, he was the coach on Hang Time. Hang Time, yeah, 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 yeah. We, I remember that show. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> so Buckus and Sayers, to me, they're obviously they're going to be forever linked, right? And so I, I think it's kind of beautiful. They're they're taking second and third the same draft 1965 draft there's this wonderful a football life that nfl films does that talks about both of them together and i think it's super well done if you haven't seen it make sure you go do it i'm pretty sure it's on youtube and if you have seen it but it's been a while go back and watch it again i've watched it like three or four times and my wife would be like are you watching that buckus sayers thing again yep yes honey i am uh in 1994 the bears retired both their numbers together so 51 and 40 were retired together i think i just think it's just really amazing with these two guys and they seem like they genuinely like each other so let's talk about sayers you know he plays until 71 so a little bit shorter of a career he makes four pro bowls five first team all pros uh he's in the Hall of fame class in 1977 And Sayers is one of the most electrifying players to ever play football, just period. He's one of the best running backs of all time. Um, And I think this is one of those classic what ifs. What if he didn't tear up his knee in 1968 Mm -hmm. when he's just 25 years old, right? How much more could he have done 
to the franchise and to NFL record books. I think he would just absolutely just be crushing things, right? So in his short time where he was healthy, he leads the league in rushing and kick return average twice each, and he leads the league in all-purpose yards three times. Leads the league in scoring once, which is not easy for a running back to do. Because he had such a short career, he was actually the youngest inductee into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. So the way that I kind of think of Sayers, and again, you know, if, if you're on the younger side, you never saw him. We never saw him either. But to me, it's like he was Peyton before Peyton as a running back, and he was Hester before Hester on returns. And, you know, kind of combine those two things, I think is just kind of amazing. And when I was doing the the championship belt series, I, I said that he was a virtuoso of moves and speed. And I thought that that really kind of described him well, is that he just sort of flowed in and out of traffic better than any running back you've ever seen. And his famous quote was that, give him 18 inches of daylight. That's all he needs. <laughs> I just think that's kind of funny. I don't know where he comes up with 18 inches, but it's a great, great little line. On the night, on the 50-year uh, anniversary team, they named one halfback for the first 50 years. And it wasn't Red Grange or it wasn't all these. It was Gale Sayers. Gale Sayers was the one running back on the 50-year anniversary team. The 75-year team, they named four running backs. One of them was Gale Sayers. One of them was Walter Payton. So the Bears had two of the four. And just, you know, for fun, Bronco Nagurski, our old friend, was one of the three fullbacks that they listed. And then, of course, he was on the 100-year the hundred year anniversary team. The other guy that Sayers is forever going to be linked to is Brian Piccolo. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all seen the movie, or at least we know the story. But I wanted to kind of share one thing to kind of tie it back to that George Hallis Award that we talked about earlier. So in May 1970, the Hallis Award goes to Sayers. And it was because he came back from that knee surgery and he was able to lead the league in rushing in 1969, which was an incredible like comeback story because you know they really didn't fix his knee correctly, but he still fought through it and he was able to still have success. Maybe not the level of success that he had put out for himself, but he was able to come back and have some level of success. And so Sayers gets this award and he gets up and he gives this really emotional speech that they then like basically lifted into the movie Brian's song. Sayers says, quote, you flatter me by giving me this award, but I'll tell you here and now that I accept it for Brian Piccolo. Brian Piccolo is the man of courage who should receive the George S. Hallis Award. I accept it tonight, but I'll present it to Brian tomorrow. I love Brian Piccolo, and I'd like all of you to love him too. And tonight, when you when you hit your knees, ask God to love him too. So wow. um, as, a, as a Bears fan, and I think as a human person, you know, you, you wonder why all of a sudden when he starts talking in that movie that it just gets really dusty in whatever <laughs> movie you're watching. Just, a, you know, an amazing connection that those two had. Uh, obviously, Brian Piccolo loses his battle to cancer, and uh, Sayers, you know, was really moved and, and hurt by that. But th- those two will ever be linked. But I think he was also forever be linked with Dick Buckus. But those two guys, Buckus and Sayers, you know, they finished – second and third of the all-time 100 Bears list that when he said a gridiron put together, and they pretty much finished in the top three uh, for every top 100 Bears list that came out this last year. And I, they're just, they're larger than life. They're, they are the Chicago Bears. And it's, it's a shame that they didn't have more success. And you always kind of hear that paired with them, but 
I mean, it's two guys on a football team, Jeff. They can only do so much. Yeah, and it really kind of links back to what we said at the at the top of this segment, which was all of these guys that were from the 50s, they were hitting their peak in kind of that 62-63 season, and then they retire. And so they're left with kind of a bare cupboard, and they're kind of the, the only star attraction on each side of the ball. And so they don't have a lot of team success overall, but they are just hugely important to – the NFL to the Chicago Bears, obviously, and I just think to football in general, these two guys are just larger than life. So uh, we'll end it there, then we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to do our categories on the other side of it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Okay, Matt, we're back. So we're going to do our categories. We'll start off with our favorite random stat of the decade. What'd you come up with? Well, Jeff, if you remember earlier, we were talking about Mike Ditka and Johnny Morris saying they preferred the backup QB, Rudy Bukic. And so I did a little digging, and here's Rudy Bukic's 1965 season. 20 touchdowns, 9 picks, a 93 quarterback rating. So pretty good, right? Maybe these guys were yeah, right. no kidding. 1966, it almost flips. 10 touchdowns, 21 picks, a 49 QB rating. And I just find that so odd. Like, what happened? Like, what how does someone have that level of success? And then the next year he falls off. And then after that, he barely plays quarterback at all for the Bears. And so I just thought that was a really random stat that tied in with the story I told about Mike Ditka and Johnny Morris earlier. Yeah, I think that for me, that's, that is interesting. I think for me, it's just, I had to go back to that 63 championship game because it just sticks out to me as maybe the weirdest game that I've looked at a, at a box score for. The Chicago Bears intercepted the Giants and Y.A. Tittle, who we talked about last time, five times in the championship game. So you think, great. I mean, they rolled them, right? No, the final score was 14 to 10. (laughs) And so you're thinking like, okay, well, what did the Bears do on offense? So Billy Wade was the quarterback. So he went 10 for 28. He only had 138 yards. He did run for two touchdowns, a one-yard run and a two-yard run. And the leading rusher of the day, a guy named Ronnie Bull, 42 yards. So <laughs> there's no offense in this game. This is this is like the perfect. This is almost the perfect game of like uh, Buddy Ryan. You know, described one time that his perfect game was like a two to nothing win. <laughs> and I, I feel like this, although it's 14 to 10, it's kind of close. Because it's all defense here. I just I find that that whole game to be just fascinating. I, it had to be, if you love defensive football, it had to be just a joy to watch. But I bet you, for the most part, people did not enjoy that game very much. Who do you think the best? Here's a here's one. Who's the best player of this decade? You know that is such a tough question, and I thought about it a long time, and I'm kind of taking the easy way out. I'm just gonna go Dick Buckus because. Yeah. There's no reason not to. You could make a case for some of the other players, but I just want to keep it simple here. I'm going with Dick Buckus. 
So I think that anyone that argues Mike Ditka, I, I will listen to the argument, but I just don't think that's it. He had an amazing rookie year. He was really good the next couple of years. And then, like you said, he kind of started going downhill a little bit, got into it with Alice, and he trades him away. To me, it's between Sayers and Buckus. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really, really hard to pick between the two. But for me, Buckus does it for a little longer. So if Sayers doesn't and get hurt, do you go Sayers? I don't know. Maybe. I I think that they're, it's so close. It, and honestly... I'm going to give it to Buckus because I'm going to give Sayers the next award, which is <laughs> okay. most exciting player. Well, <laughs> so. you and I both agree on that. It's it's got to be Gale Sayers. There's his, his clips hold up to this day. He's fun to watch. So imagine how much fun yeah. he was during the '60s when there weren't a lot of guys on the field that were able to do what he was doing. Given that he's got that Hester element as a returner, I think the return, like a return touchdown, is the most exciting play in football, in my opinion. And and then you've got a guy that you can hand the ball off to that can take it to the house at any time. And so for me, it's like people are paying to see Buckus, of course, but they're really definitely paying to come see Sayers because there's nothing more exciting than a running back that can score at any time. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. All right, so here's here's a question. I guess I kind of know what your answer is going to be, but who's your favorite player from this decade? You know, I I was tempted to pick Ditka and Morris, but I'll answer the question how it's supposed to be. I'm just going to go Iron Mike Ditka. Uh, the, the, okay. the stories, I, I had to pick stories to tell. I, there were so many of them. He's such a colorful character. And uh, you, you watch the highlights, Jeff, uh, how we played. I imagine he was a lot of guys' favorite player for that decade. I think that you could pick five different people. and <laughs> Go and pick totally, one. We'd be totally defensible. And I'm, I'm super enamored by Ed Obradovich, but like, I'm enamored by him talking about his play. <laughs> and so it's all, it's kind of tough. Like, cause it's like, well, am I, am I, is this my favorite guy because of his personality, which is also hard because there's great personalities or am I, is this my favorite player because of, of how he plays? And so I, I, I went back and forth. I wanted to say Obradovich, but I, I, I think it's Buckus for me because I, really just love how he played that position his the way he tackled even is just kind of fascinating and and i think he's the only person that looks like that when he's tackling <laughs> and so i just i just find it fascinating I, and and so for me he always sticks out as being my favorite player from this decade it's a great choice what about best season and i again this one could be interesting because you've got a couple of really good candidates here i i went with johnny morris's 1963 season of 92 catches, 1,200 yards, 10 touchdowns. For the simple fact that those 92 catches stood for over 20 years. And so I think that shows that level of dominance for that season when it takes someone 20 years to break your record. So I, I'm actually going to go with Dicka's rookie season and the 1,000 yards receiving mm-hmm. for a tight end. Yeah, great answer. Bears have never had a 1,000-yard tight end since. And oh, my gosh, we haven't, have we? <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh, we haven't. And they don't have a lot of thousand-yard receivers, even, and so to me, it's like it's kind of a ridiculous year. It's out of nowhere. It reshapes the NFL. So I, I, I went with that. But I, there's there's some good seasons. Obviously, Sayers has some good seasons as well. So uh, a lot of a lot of choices here, which in the past we haven't necessarily had a lot of those choices. But what about best game? I, actually, I don't think this is actually debatable. I think this is pretty straightforward. But did you have? What did you have for best game? 
So you're saying the best game isn't debatable? I don't think the best game's debatable. Well, I'm going to surprise you here because my best game and my best moment tying together. I was because of the historical implications here. It's the 1963 season. We're playing the Steelers. During the week leading up to this game, JFK had been assassinated. And so you've got the team, probably a lot of the guys didn't want to play. A lot of people were down. Hollis pumps them up. They're playing in Pittsburgh. I guess all the Steelers fans were just drunker than skunks and just really rowdy. The Bears are down 14-17. to 17. they got to win this game or at least tie to, to hold that number one spot so they can get into the championship. And so they're down. They throw this kind of out to Ditka. So here's my best moment. Ditka, I, I've seen the highlight. I counted seven, maybe eight guys had a shot at him. They don't bring him down. He doesn't go all the way. They catch him at the end because he's exhausted. It's the fourth quarter. The Bears tie it. And so that's that's my best moment. Now, why is this my best game? Because this is like such a perfect Hallis and Dicka story, what happens after. So the game's tied, but it's not over. The Bears kick off. The Steelers run a play or two, and then they break one. They break one all the way for a touchdown. So the Bears are thinking they lost. There was a flag on the play. They bring it back. The game ends in a tie. The Steelers fans are possibly going to murder all the Bears players here. And everyone's just so <laughs> pissed off. Now, the Bears get out of there. And then go to the locker room. But the Steelers reporter like somehow got into the locker room with him. And he's getting in Hallis's face. You bought this game, you dirty. You bought it. And so Hallis is just giving him the death stare. No one's for sure what's going to happen. Then Dicka just picks up the reporter and puts him out in the hallway and comes back in. <laughs> and then... like I. You know I love history, so this is a very interesting part of the story to me. They turn on the TV, I guess, in the locker room. On it, uh, Jack Ruby kills Lee Harvey Oswald, like right oh, after the game. So just like a super, it's an odd game. I'm proud of that fact that I picked the best game as a tie. I'm proud of that in some way. But just the historical implications here, and it's a perfect Hallis story. Someone accusing him of paying off the refs. Hallis looks like he's going to kill this guy, and then Dicka just comes in. And I just felt uh, that was one of the most interesting things I've learned about throughout this whole thing. So for me, I, we've got to mention it, uh, it's Gail Sayers' six-touchdown performance. I figured you would go with that, so I was trying to get something else. But you're absolutely right. That is the best game. So the Bears win this game. They're playing the Niners. They win it. It's a muddy field, 60. right? It's a muddy field. So it's in Wrigley Field, and it's mess. It's messy. right? It's December. It's all muddy. 61 to 20, Gale Sayers looks like he's running on like it's perfect weather and everybody else is stuck in the mud, literally. So let's talk about the touchdowns. So Sayers has an 80-yard catch and run, and that's in the first quarter. And then in the second quarter, he's got a 21-yard touchdown run. Right before half, he gets one more in, and it's a 7-yard touchdown run. In the third quarter, he gets a 50-yard touchdown run. And they had later on in the third, a one-yard rush. And then he caps it off in the fourth quarter with an 85-yard putt return touchdown. <laughs> so Goodness gracious. It's just like this absolutely ridiculous game. It's in like nine carries, 113 yards, four touchdowns, two catches for 89 yards, and another touchdown. And then you have the putt return touchdown. So it's like just a disgusting game. And it's like the highlights are so cool because everybody just – it personifies him. He is moving 
gracefully through this field and everybody else is just having a hard time moving. And that I think just really kind of epitomizes Gail Sayers. Absolutely, Jeff. That's a fantastic answer. So your best moment, you kind of covered those together. And I just said to me, creation of the modern tight end position. I think that's really cool. And a lot of that was Hallis pushing, pushing those ideas and drafting the right guy to make it happen. And I think that's just really cool and something that still is relevant today. So let's get into the GM stuff. Best roster move, couple good candidates, but what did you have? My boy Johnny Morris, a 12th round pick. Probably the most impactful Bears receiver, and we got him in the 12th round. I love this answer because it seems like you like the later value picks. Yes, I do. I kind of like some of the trade, the draft pick trades, but uh, for me, it's the 1965 draft. It's not just getting Buckus and Sayers in general, which is obviously just a home run, but here's the specifics on how they got the number two pick. 1964 draft, so the year before, the Bears trade out their second round pick and their fourth round pick to the Steelers for the rights to Pittsburgh's first round choice in 1965. Wow. And then the Steelers go on to have a bad year and they they're and the Bears aren't very good either in 64, but the Steelers are worse and so the Steelers actually have the second pick that ends up being the Bears. They have sec- the second and third pick and basically all it took was a couple of draft picks from the year before. They didn't and have they Jimmy Johnson's value chart thing. They it, well they I don't know why people kept trading with Hallis. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He keeps making them look foolish. Uh, but this is kind of the last great Hallis trade here. And it's uh, it, it's pretty amazing. I'm going to move into worst roster move. I know you don't have one. Actually, so Jeff, actually, Jeff, I, I have such oh. love. I have such love for Mike Ditka that I'm putting George, George, George Hallis's one poor move in his history as trading Ditka because he traded him for some QB that wasn't very good. And it sounds to me like he did it you know, a bit out of spite, just as Ditka was upsetting him and really kind of derailed Ditka's career for a few years. And I just, it's, I can't defend the move. It's a bad move, Jeff. Okay. Well, I've got, this is a worse move slash what if, because it's more of a, there's, there's some uncertainty with it. So I'm going to, I'm going to go through it anyway, but all right, 1965 draft, getting, Sayers and Buckus is already legendary and amazing. Mm-hmm. But what you might not know is that the Bears actually had a third first round pick. Sixth <laughs> how did they how did they get that one? Well, that was from Washington. I don't I don't have the details of how they got it, but uh Hallis was stocking up, I guess, to be able to get this this load up on this draft. So they've got Washington's pick. It's the sixth overall pick. You've got on the roster a struggling quarterback in Billy Wade. He wasn't very good in 64. really wasn't that great in 63 either, but you know you know he's at the end of his career. He ends up only starting two games in 65, and this is kind of done. And so I, they're, they're kind of uneven at quarterback. You know, you think that maybe they'd be looking for it. No, they don't go that direction. They take a guy named Steve DeLong, who's a tackle, so he actually doesn't sign with the Bears. He goes out and signs with the Chargers yeah, instead of the Chargers. Bears in the rival AFL League, right? So I assume this so, is heading to who the Bears passed on. Right. So who's the first quarterback taken in that draft? Any guesses? This is, you said the 1966 draft? 1965 draft. The same draft as Sayers and Buckus. Oh, gosh. Uh, let see. Unitas would have been drafted already, I believe. So I'll give you a hint. It's that... 
he actually doesn't sign with the NFL team. He goes and signs with the AFL team. Oh, is it Joe Namath? Joe Namath. Oh, wow. So could you imagine if Hallis takes Joe Namath in the same class as as Buckus and Sayers and convinces him to sign in Chicago instead of New York? Not only does it alter the history of the Bears, but it alters the entire history of football because Super Bowl three which is the famous Super Bowl that the Jets won and he guaranteed the victory. A lot of people believe that's what gave the AFL legitimacy because that was the first championship game that they won. And it led just that next year into the AFL and NFL finally coming to grips and merging together. And so it, I think the whole league change, complexion of the league changes. And of course the uh, complexion of the Chicago Bears changes. Well, that's a fascinating story, Jeff. And, I, I'm just sitting here thinking about seeing Broadway Joe in Bears colors. Of course, I don't think you call him Broadway Joe then, but and imagine all the trouble him and Johnny Morris and Ditka could have gotten into <laughs> Chicago. Yeah, Second City nights. Joe. Yeah. Windy City Joe. Yeah, uh, all right. What about your favorite what if? I think I got to go with, uh, sadly, uh, the death of Willie Gallimore. The Bears are coming off a really a fantastic 63 season. They fall off in 64. But also this, imagine Gallimore and Sayers in the same backfield, both guys that can catch the ball, both guys that can run the ball. I mean, how do you stop that? If you're a defensive coordinator in the 1960s, how do you stop Sayers and Gallimore? I don't know. So that's kind of my very sad what if. I'm just going to go with the Namath one for me. What about assuming skill level translates to the modern game? What player from this decade would you put on the 2006 Bears to put them over the top to win the Super Bowl? I'm going with the ball-hawking safety, Richie Pettibone, just because Mike Brown, I think I'm repeating an answer I had earlier, but Mike Brown's hurt. The second, the safety position is a little weak. Maybe Pettibone picks off Manning. Maybe a guy that had a penchant for finding the end zone after an interception. Maybe that's something that he makes a big play and helps us in that Super Bowl, so... I'm going with Richie Pettibone. I think this one's tough because some of the good players uh, overlap, good players on the 2016. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of tough to kind of pick. And I, I ended up just going with Gail Sayers, and I kind of thought Sayers with Thomas Jones would be a really interesting combination. And I know that you know, you've, you've already got Hester, so there's some redundancy there. And so I, I know I'm kind of – not making a great argument, but I find that it would be really interesting if you just kind of went all in on the running game in that 2006 game and just said, we're giving it to Thomas Jones and we're giving it to Gale Sayers. That's all you got to do and see what happened. And so that, that was kind of, that was kind of where my, my thoughts went, but can't really argue with putting Sayers on a team. No, absolutely. So this next one to me, I don't think there's actually any doubt what the answer is but player from this decade you'd most want on the 2020 roster oh why why isn't there any doubt i think that the there's such a specific need on this current roster construction that matches up with an absolute stud from this decade well uh you got two hall of fame players in buckus and sayers and so you're going with one of them no you got a third hall of fame player oh you're, you're not going with buckus or sayers i'm going with Ditka. Oh, wow. This team needs a tight end in the worst way. This Think about this roster and, or this coaching staff. This coaching staff comes from the Andy Reid tree. The Andy Reid tree uses Travis Kelsey in Kansas City. They use Zach Ertz in Philadelphia. And those offenses run 
very successfully, in large part because they have that dynamic tight end. You put Mike Ditka into this offense, this thing's going to start to hum. I am very upset that I didn't think to put my favorite player from the decade in for that answer. So I refuse to put You can I, change it. No, I refuse to give my answer. <laughs> out, of, out of respect for Iron Mike, we're moving on. Okay. All right. So who from the modern Bears would have the most impact on this decade? So would you take Erlacher, Tillman, or Hester back to the 60s? Well, Jeff, I kind of answered this question the way I want. And I think you have a lot of great players in the 60s. What we're missing is that quarterback to maybe give these teams a shot at being much more competitive. And so smoking Jay. I'm putting smoking Jay, baby, in the 1960s, and I'm seeing what that guy can do. I, you know I love Cutler. I've been waiting this whole series to use him. <laughs> I saw my opportunity in the 1960s. Put put Cutler with Ditka. You think Cutler wouldn't love throwing to Ditka or Johnny Morris or pitching it to Gallimore or Sayers? He would have the, st- the coaching stability with Hallis. They would put him in a position to succeed where he's not getting a new offensive coordinator every year. They would be innovative, and they would use Jay's, they would use Jay's talents to its utmost. I'm going Plus, Jay Cutler. This is like smoking Jay. Smoking Jay Cutler. He fits this in. is the era of players smoking in the locker room at halftime. What brand of cigarettes does he endorse? Marlboros. Okay. All right. There you go. I'm going to say Lucky Strike, but it just seems really obvious. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know many cigarette brands. <laughs> <laughs> uh, come on, Lucky Strike and quarterback. That's got to be it. Okay. Okay. So uh, for me, it's Tillman. Uh, again, I'm going to stick with the the question that I asked. Oh, you rule follower, you. I know. I know. I know. So to me, it's Tillman, and it's almost by default, right? Because. Hester, you know, you've already got Sayers in this decade. You know, Erlacher, well, you've got you've got George in the early part of the decade, and you've got Buckus in the, the second half of the decade. So it, it those guys just it doesn't work. It's gonna be Tillman. But I as much as I like Dave Witzel and Benny McRae, Tillman's a big upgrade over either one of those guys. And so I do like the idea of having Charles Tillman on this sixties defense because I think he obviously he's ball ball hawk and everything, but I think he just adds to that secondary. And the early part of the decade, that pass rush was so good. I think Tillman's picking off even more footballs mm-hmm. and you know how much of a nose for the end zone he had. So I think he would be just this huge addition to that team and would, would help that defense be even better than they are. So for me, it's Tillman, but I like your smoking Jay answer. I, lo- I love how you're a rule breaker, just like Jay Cutler. Oh, yeah. One and the same. All right, so last question. Who won the decade? I've never – I feel like in all the ones we've had, it hasn't been that hard. I struggled with this. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. But I struggled with this answer. I could have gone six, seven different ways. And ultimately, I'm going to go with positional innovation because of Mike Ditka Gail Sayers, and Dick Butkus. You watch their highlights. They look very modern. A lot of the highlights I've seen up to this point, it's kind of like, well, okay, that's great and all, but it doesn't really look like modern-day football. Those guys are the blueprints for their positions. Ditka, Sayers, and Butkus. And so I'm going Chicago Bear, positional innovation. And who is responsible for that positional innovation? I assume you're going to say Hallis. I'm going to give George Hallis winning this decade as well. Two decades. Nice. Yeah. Here's my argument. So he wins the 20s, as we talked about in the 20s episode. 
and we're giving him the 60s. So it's kind of bookends his career. Okay. He, so he drafts and help usher in new offensive innovation with the modern tight end position. So he scouted Ditka, and he brings him in, and he, and he puts him in the right position to succeed. That's amazing. Great. He wins one last championship in the 60s. So he comes back for that last run. He's able to pull it off. He wins the last championship. He wins the Coach of the Year in 63 and also in 65. So he wins Coach of the Year twice in the decade. He's inducted into the first class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He pulls off a masterful trade with the Steelers to acquire their first rounder for just draft picks from the 64. And he turns that draft into Gale Sayers and Dick Buckus, two of the best Bears to ever play. And by the end of the decade, the league is strong. It merges with the AFL. And there are 26 franchises by the end of this decade that are playing professional football from a meeting in Canton, Ohio at an automobile sales floor to this time here. This league has grown and been shaped by George Hallis and he had his hand in everything. And I'm just super impressed by all the things that we've learned to talk about George Hallis. And to me, I have to give it to George Hallis. Well, you make a very convincing case, and I, I can't argue with it at all. It's a very good case, Jeff. All right, so I win that one. And <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that's it. That's the 1960s. Join us next time as we cover the 1970s. Don't forget to keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can find me at Gridironborn. And until next time, thanks for listening and bear down.